Welcome to the Build the Future podcast, where we host conversations that promote exciting and positive visions of the future. Today, we're talking with Robin Duchant, the founder of Avio and the writer behind the Future of Manufacturing newsletter. In his work, Robin is helping shape the world of manufacturing and in the process, helping people develop the skills they need to build the world of tomorrow. Let's jump right in. When you view the world, what lens do you typically view it from? Is it like, oh, shit, everything's kind of broken? Like, we fix it? Is it like, oh, everything's amazing? How do you find yourself showing up? It's complex. It's, it's so complex. And it, and it just becomes more complex. And I'm really afraid of this. Like, I'm 31. I installed TikTok last year for the first time. And I see these kids here in Berlin, you know, running around shooting these videos. And I'm seeing the videos on, on, on my phone. Then, and I'm like, holy shit, I feel so old. And this happened in just like a, a short time period. And now imagine... Again, exponential growth. How will this be in the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years? And it, it just will become more and more complex. And how can we deal with this complexity all just all around us, right? And, and how also we as humans can maybe spend more time with ourselves and, and zooming out of this complexity and more maybe, you know, on the, on the things that matter most to us, which are probably, you know, here left and there and you can see them, but it's maybe harder to grab them before. And uh, just because, you know, we have to take on, on so many different things these days compared to, let's say, 50 years ago when you're living in a village and you, you're making wood for a living, you know, and there was your family and uh, a few friends and, and, and you, you were exercising, doing sports and, and hanging out. And, and that was your life, basically. Is that what we should be aiming kind of to return to or like to tap back into? Like, what kind of future do you want to live in? Like, when you think about like, okay, canvas of your life in 10, 20, 30 years, like, what do you want that to look like? I think for me, one of the biggest things is just being satisfied with the life, you know, I have. And I think actually maybe the question is already wrong because you think about the life in 10 or 20 years. Why not thinking about the life today? Why, why think about the past or the future when you actually want to live in the present? Uh, and maybe here, you know, I'm, I'm reading actually, um, Naval's book at the moment. So maybe, you know, you know where my inspiration comes from a little bit, but I think it's it, to me, at least I can totally resonate with it. And so, of course, I think we have to take, uh, we have to think about the future, especially I think as a society point of view, right? Climate change, the skills gap, for example, which is a very important problem for me that I'm trying to solve. And so I think it's very good to, to think about this and to get smart people together and, and trying to, to solve these problems that will occur and that maybe will get bigger over time. But I think we shouldn't get lost in only thinking about the futures and maybe concerns that we're having, but thinking more about, you know, hey, what can I do today that, I don't know, makes me happy? What is a good reminder and so on? And, you know, now I'm talking about this and it sounds so simple always, I think, when you talk about it, but actually living it and, and practicing it, it's just insanely hard, at least for me. I agree. It's, I was talking with one of my, one of my buddies who will probably, you know, hear this call out. I got the Naval book as well. And I sound like, hey, we should talk about like plans for the future. He's like, dude, I'm just trying to like live in the present. And I'm like, what? Where are you, where's this coming from? Like, oh, aha. It just clicked with me when you mentioned that. Like, oh, yes, I got him the Naval book. And it's like, oh, live in the present. Like, how are you happy in this moment? I, I don't necessarily know if it's like being content, just like settling with what you have, but instead trying to do things that that imbue your life with like meaning and purpose, right? So instead of like, oh, I don't want to go for that run because it's like my body's going to hurt. That's going to make me unhappy. It's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm going to strengthen my mind and strengthen my body and I'm going to find happiness in in the pursuit. I think running is not a problem for me. I'm actually doing a lot of running. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I always, I think I have this one rule. I always feel better after the run than before. Really always. Always. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Always. Every time. I mean, maybe, you know, if it was a super hard run, maybe a few minutes, you know, I need to 
uh, get my energy back and, and more air. But then I definitely feel better than I was feeling before. Uh, so it's just like this mental barrier in your head where you have to go through um, that, you know, maybe there will be pain, but pain will be temporary. But after that, uh, you hopefully get the runner's high or you feel at least uh, better than before. Yeah, it's uh, pain plus reflection equals progress, right? It's like, okay, like this thing happened. What happened? How do I feel? Like, what was going on here? Okay, cool. Like, and then you use that as, as fuel. And if you think about living in the present, actually, for me, for example, running has become kind of like a meditation. I usually don't run with music or podcasts and so on, so I'm only by myself. And then, you know, it's like one hour just, you know, you, yourself, the city, of course, the surrounding, and your thoughts. And when I was injured, for example, for like a few weeks, I could totally feel how I was missing it. It was so hard, you know, I couldn't clear my mind, so to say, after a hard work, uh, after a hard day of work. Uh, I was missing this, you know, one hour maybe for myself, you know, without like a phone and anything. Uh, it's a very personal thing. And I think other people, you know, for them, it's maybe, I don't know, they go dance, they, they play tennis, they play golf, they, they go boxing, they go to the, to the fitness, uh, for the, to the gym, whatever. Uh, but I think it's these things that probably, you know, people, people need in their, uh, let's say, daily life. Yeah. It's, it's almost like it's, it's creating a space to like take care of yourself and to, to detach from this matrix that we're, we're plugged into. I mean, like, it's so easy. Check your notifications, check your email, like see what's going on on Twitter or whatever your social media is which is on TikTok, right? And then you, all these emotions like just get dug up that you can't really control. Like just, just like the, on TikTok, like, damn, I'm old. Like that's a weird feeling. Like, wow, like I don't, what are these kids doing? I don't get this. That's an emotion that gets like triggered in your brain, right? And you're like, oh man, I like you didn't, you didn't come up with that, but like, that's just what got thrown at you. And so you don't have the space to like, you know, detach from that. Like most people don't, brain just gets cluttered, it's rough. So Robin, tell me, tell me about the future you're building at Itavio. What's the, what's the vision? The core vision is basically you want to empower people and especially in traditional industries to take on the jobs of tomorrow. And I highlight again in, in traditional industries and especially manufacturing, because I think these industries are often overlooked, especially in tech. I think we're building a lot of like products for pe other people who work in tech. Uh, we're building a lot of really good solutions for problems we have maybe in tech or, or in adjacent solutions or maybe in the consumer world. Uh, but if you think about these industries and especially in Europe, uh, like manufacturing, for example, has contributed like a lot to the to wealth of our society, to why, you know, we're actually are where we are and so on. And so in the end, and I think empowerment is a very strong word that probably this industry hasn't seen so much before, and which uh, is also one of the reasons why I highlighted it, because we want to empower First of all, domain experts to share their knowledge, to get more, let's say, visibility also, and to help people to explore this knowledge in a collaborative way. So I really believe in community. I really believe in doing things together, learning together, cohort-based courses. And I think the win-win situation out of this is basically that we, in the end, help companies not only to survive <laughs> because we up-level the employees, but actually to stay innovative, to stay competitive without the need to radically restructuring themselves, right? Because I think actually the biggest asset they are having is the current workforce. Um, and they also won't be able to hire only like the best talent in the market, given how the, how competitive the market is today. And I think this is one quote from one of the consultants from BCG, uh, which I think is very interesting because he says, workforce planning will become more important than financial planning in the years to come. And that's something a little bit where I think, you know, this, I totally can see this trend and, and where we also, you know, want to be the one where we help these companies to the up-level their, their current employees. Tell me a little bit more about how you think about that, like the workplace planning. So this is more, how do you train and grow your, your team and your people? 
I think most of these companies, and it depends a little bit on the size, right? I think some of the smaller companies manufacturing, for them, HR is an admin function. They don't even think about maybe training a lot, right? Or how their workforce should look like in five or 10 years. Not yet, unfortunately. I think, or I hope it is, uh, eventually we'll get there or they will die. Uh, I think there's no other option. Uh, but if you think about the large corporates, basically for them, they all know that they have this talent shortage, that they need different kinds of roles, that they need people with different kinds of skills. And I think the problem awareness now is very high and it's getting just higher and higher. Um, and that's something I have experienced in the last few months already. But the question now is, you know, what's the right solution? So what, what do you do, right? You can do many, many different things. And it's a very complex problem. It's about people. And I think the, the workforce planning plays a little bit in the, in the role that at least people have like a strategic vision where they want to be with a company, what kind of skills they need, and then basically go from there to define how they want to get there. Contextualize the importance of ensuring that, that the manufacturers like, can actually go produce stuff. Like, why does this matter? I mean, in the end, we're sitting here, right, with a laptop, my phone here, you know, the camera, like everything here in my room is manufactured, of course, at some point. It's crazy what we can manufacture these days, right? From like really small things from 3D printing to like big cars and so on to rockets that maybe fly to, to Mars and so on. I mean, it's incredible, right? It's all, and it's all done by, or it all or has been all invented by people. And so I think there is some fascination in, you know, shaping a physical asset. Similar maybe when you were a kid, you were playing in the sand, you know, right? you were building like a castle in the sand. Uh, and now we shape all these kinds of like physical assets in, in factories and and make things that that we benefit from. And I think it's a, it, this won't go away, of course. And in Europe, for example, we have been very good at engineering and have been very good at shaping some of these physical things and, and also have benefited a lot from it, right? That, that drive our society, that drive our wealth, generations to come and so on. And I think if we want to stay competitive, we want to stay innovative, we want to stay also like wealthy society, we need to keep up the innovation there. And this is only possible by, you know, giving people the right skills and the knowledge basically build up upon the uh, what they've built uh, so far one of the problems is that like the talent the traditional path is not to go into manufacturing right it's to go into like we have to build all of the stuff but you know software is more attractive because it scales and yeah there's like this this narrative where we're not going to be able to go build like the things that you know make our world exist like again we're having this conversation over things that were manufactured and we can't (laughs) we need to preserve that space but I think maybe just to, to, to add one more piece to this, I think one of the uh, part of the problem is also that some of these companies have just underestimated or undervalued the people and the talent, right? Where I think they, they haven't not invested enough into them. They have not acknowledged them. And then again, we're here with empowerment. You know, they haven't empowered them enough. Uh, so that they also, you know, then leave other people won't find them attractive anymore. And of course, you know, if I can choose whatever equipment I, I would, um, like to work with whatever I want to learn and get some other benefits I mean then the choice maybe is more obvious that, that you turn down the manufacturing world I want to get your take on how, how COVID affected this because now people realize like they like just how many options there are out there and they've been forced to go work remote and so they're you know, traditional like hey I'm going to say I'm saying this job this you know, manufacturer, even though I may not be feeling empowered at work or may not be fulfilled, it's like, this is, this is the job I have. It's consistent with COVID kind of forced everyone to kind of reevaluate. And I'm curious kind of how you see that, like the role that COVID played in shifting kind of the landscape of where people choose to go work and how, how this may play out. It's like, why would I go work for a company that doesn't, doesn't treat me well, or that doesn't like, or I don't feel empowered. Uh, I'm curious kind of like what you're, what you're, like how you think about that. I think the empowerment actually is probably independent of the COVID. 
I think COVID probably underlines more the trend of remote work. And of course, you know, the question is if you have to be in one factory or one office um, and you're able to, to work remote, then of course these options are gone. That said, I think, for example, for, for Germany, and I guess it's in Europe, and also maybe partially in the US, a lot of these companies are maybe not, you know, in the city center. But also, I think people in the last few months have actually seen that living maybe in the countryside can be very nice. So I really don't know yet how this will play out. Very curious to see. I'm still, you know, I'm still living in Berlin. I really like it here. But I also can see people maybe who want to say, hey, you know what? Um, it's also fine to live on the countryside. It's a bit more calm and so on. I don't have to be in the big city. Well, then again, it's going to have a positive impact of, uh, for, for manufacturing companies. But I think in general, of course, they also need to open up to, let's say, the new world of working and, and remote work and so on. And, and of course, it's also hard if some of your workforce cannot even work remote, right? Because then you directly are a hybrid model. And I think hybrid models are also very, uh, difficult to manage. I'm not saying impossible, but I mean, if you, for example, if you haven't worked remote before, there has to be so much change in communication and how you communicate with the employees. If you, you know, suddenly work remotely and I mean, many of these companies, they have zero experience. And so it's, it's a big challenge for them, I think, just to, to establish this kind of model. Tell me more about like how you kind of going about like training and empowering the manufacturers you're working with. Yeah, I think there's two ways of training I'm thinking about. One is basically more the upskilling part, right? Where you're basically trying to help people to learn, to get better at their job, you know, to maybe do a few more different tasks, just getting like a, a ground level of knowledge for certain areas. This can be, you know, let's say electromobility. This can be digital transformation. How can you implement software, for example, in the factory? And this can also be maybe the, the modern way of how you should work in HR. And then I think, and this is a part where this will probably become increasingly more important where we are not now yet with Avio, uh, but I think in the future is definitely possible for us where it's more about reskilling. And I always give the example with Volkswagen where there's 30,000 people which they, who they don't need anymore due to electromobility. And we're in Germany, we have strong unions, so they cannot fire 30,000 people. And on the other hand, they need 10,000 people uh, as software developers. So what do you do now? Right? What they did, for example, they have built their own academy uh, where they reskill a very tiny part of the employees, roughly 100 per year, to become a software developer. Uh, but of course, it's a drop in the ocean. It's a drop in the ocean. You also cannot reskill the 50-year-old woman or man who runs a machine to become a software developer on the next day, right? It's impossible. But I think we, we need to carefully think more and more about, you know, different skill sets that people have and maybe future roles and how we can match them in a, in a good and efficient way. Right. So one example, for example, is if you have a truck driver, maybe not every truck driver can be a software developer, but truck driver have very good skills at, com at navigating complex hardware systems. So maybe you can reskill a truck driver to become like a drone pilot. And I think that's a little bit, you know, the, the, the way how we probably need to think about these adjacent skill sets and adjacent roles. And it's going to be very difficult and interesting at the same time how the future will play out with us. And, and I think we're just at the very early phase, actually. We all want the future to be better, but we don't realize like it's, it's going to come with change and challenge. Yeah, like certain jobs are not going to exist. Like even, even the jobs that like we have right now, like the work we're doing probably will morph and change and like we'll have to adapt and do something different like 5, 10, 20 years from now. Yes. Yeah. And now imagine somebody comes to you and says, hey, your job won't be here in a year anymore. Now you have these three options. Yeah. You can choose job A, B, or C. We have a program for you six months. What do you do? It's, it's fucking hard. 
And I think we, we need to also carefully prepare these people that it's not only one job you will do for the next 20, 30 years, maybe because they're used to, but it's going to change. And there's nothing we can do about this change, but we have to shift it into like a positive way of changing, right? I mean, similar to what we, what we discussed initially, that it has to be like this positive and it's actually, hey, it's cool. You can do another job. You can do, you can learn something different. How cool is that? You, it's not, you know, you don't have to do the same task all over again for the next 20 years. You actually, you know, we have these uh, different possibilities. We have like a coach here and a mentor that helps you. It's a big challenge. We know this, but we're here to support you. We empower you and choose one of these three shifts. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, there's even like a, another, I don't know, um, incentive. Uh, which role this person should choose. But I think that's the way where we have to be. But it's challenging in an environment that has been very, let's say, managed top down, you know, strong hierarchies, maybe not the most modern way of managing. And, and this, this change won't come from today to tomorrow and will take years. How do we start to build new organizations such that people can apply like whatever skills they have, right? Because like the truck drivers, like how do we enable them to go be like drone pilots? They may actually not have to sit in the truck. They can go do that from home, right? So they can go live in the, the countryside or the city and they can do like the work that they need to do to like sustain themselves and feed their family and pay for the kids to go to school and all that and uh, to find like meaning and contribute. But we can also give them space or we can all create space to go do things that are like not necessarily like work driven. We should live, not work ourselves to death. What you and I are doing, well, maybe I'll speak for myself, it's like, is not work. It's just like fun. Like, let's go do some cool challenging shit versus like having to go make sure like parts are operating properly like on a on an assembly line or like at a factory and like i think like that's that's a different type of work than what we do and if we can enable people to have more flexibility or give them more options i think they'll they'd be excited about it so it's just like a, it's a reframing of the story i'm curious kind of through the through the newsletter you've been you've been running the last three years what have you learned in that process like what did you go in thinking about so you had this idea, okay, I'm going to write about manufacturing. Why was that the thing? And then how did it evolve? Okay, how do you view the space now? I studied industrial engineering and management. So there was you know, a little bit, say, a few touch points with manufacturing during my studies. Friends went into the sector. I did a few internships. Then when I started at Point Nine, um, which is a traditional VC fund focused on seed, B2B, software marketplaces, there was this hype, especially in Germany in early 2017, about Industry 4.0, so you know, new things on the shop floor and in manufacturing and of course it caught my interest and then i started blogging a little bit about it and suddenly you know people were reaching out and like asking me for more opinions and asking me for the stuff i'm reading and i was like okay before i sent the same email to 10 people i started like very you know like lightweight newsletter and that's actually how it started and and suddenly i posted once on linkedin i think overnight i got like 100 or 200 um signups so okay there might be more people who are interested in that stuff. And so I started writing the first uh, issues of it, uh, got good feedback, I think, which kept me motivated. And then I think, for example, what happened was I went to San Francisco and to Boston, and I was writing to people who I got to know through the newsletter, very senior people, founders who have been operating for years in robotics companies and manufacturing companies. And I was writing them and they invited me to their office. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm this, I'm this German dude working at a VC fund, uh, which is focused on seed anyway. So not relevant for them. I'm only looking at the space from the outside. I haven't really worked in manufacturing except for my internships. And these guys invite me to their office to chat about it. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. On the one hand, it's also a bit scary. 
but this of course you know was a big change for me because suddenly even though i was very junior people kind of like took me serious and then i think you know i just went on from there um meeting more people writing about it and i just you know then kept on kept on digging and, and got very passionate about it and i think so passionate that i found this problem that I heard so many times, but I didn't see anybody solving where I was like, Hey, if, if we don't speed up here, if nobody's really doing it, like then maybe I have to do it. And in the end, you know, one thing came to another one and, and now it all makes sense. You know, if you look at it now from the, ah, yeah, he's, he's writing this newsletter, you know, he's, he's already like long in the space. Like it all makes sense. Like, yes, looking backwards, but it was, I mean, you would have said it to me like two years ago. It's like, like no way. It wasn't really easy, but I also learned maybe it's, it's good if you follow your passion. Probably people are sometimes maybe afraid to do this or, or they, they look at what, what others are doing, you know, and maybe, you know, you can be successful. Otherwise, the success is only the, the money you're making, um, not the problem you're solving or so. Um, so, of course, you know, these are all thoughts you're also having, like, during your thought process. Oh, yeah, and the, the self-doubt and the, the challenges and, the, like, am I even doing the right thing? Like, this makes sense. It's yeah, yeah. Like... And ignore the fucking noise. There's so much noise out there, right? And there's so much different kinds of advice. Oh, my God, I know. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy, huh? Did people tell you you shouldn't do a podcast because there's maybe too many people who are running a podcast already? Maybe like one or two. They're like, oh, who needs another podcast? Okay, like, who needs okay. another newsletter? It's like, okay. the, the one thing I will say though on that is like, there's like a certain point where people actually take it seriously, right? Mm. Especially, you know, starting something. I mean, you've been doing your newsletter for, for a while, but starting kind of a, a podcast like a year ago with COVID, like everyone and their mom started a podcast. Like, oh, I'm home now. So I'm going to create something. And you saw this huge yes. uptick of, of newsletters. I was like, oh, Substack. Oh, yes. like, yeah. join my mailing list or listen to my podcast. And then huge spike and then like a massive drop off. Like, it's it's so funny. Yeah. Um, because, because it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Everyone's like, oh. I'm it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to stick to it. It's not that hard to begin with, I think. But it's hard to stick with it. Yeah, I think like that's something like people one thing that people can appreciate more just like in general, like doing anything just takes time and being patient. And, you know, this is, you know, all advice is autobiographical, but also it's like, we, we say things that we need to like tell ourselves. It's like, it's a process, you know, I would just to kind of loop things back to a VO. So what's the outcome? How does the world change? Like paint, paint me a picture again of like what the world looks like as a result of the work that you guys are doing, like you're helping empower and helping kind of upgrade the manufacturing like how does how does this like manifest in the, the physical world like what do our what do our manufacturing facilities look like what does that world look like um when everyone is is feeling empowered and enabled i think actually if we can empower and i think you know we're only like part of the contribution you know, i think we it's great if we can empower people to learn what they want to give them maybe skills they need to empower experts to share their knowledge and you know get maybe a bigger audience and so on I think all of this is great and probably you eliminate a lot of like inefficiencies in this market. In the end, also, it has to come from the companies, the management and everybody in the organization as well, right? It's a mindset. It's a cultural topic. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't say, hey, we can solve, uh, we like only we can empower all these people, right? Like for sure. But I hope that we at least, you know, can make some positive contribution to this and then hopefully uh, an impact that can be very big. And I think what's, what's very interesting is now, we actually have a lot of new technologies. We have a lot of, you know, new science. There's things we can do a lot. And, and I think people need creativity. They need time. They need to see also other things and then hear different things in order to basically judge for themselves. What's the best new technology? What's the best, you know, new way of working? How they also can modernize the factory. And 
if I could choose, let's say, like a vision or like a, a picture of the future, I would love that, you know, we have more, even like more smaller factories, right? Small, like smaller manufacturing companies that really are very specifically doing one thing really, really well compared to, let's say, like a big, a few big giants that control, let's say, 90% of the market. Uh, I'm always more, you know, the Shopify fan than the Amazon fan, even though of tremendous respect of Amazon. And I'm, I mean, it's like everything what I've done and how they do it and the execution and the operations excellence. It's just mind blowing. So my biggest respect, but in the end, you know, I like the Shopify analogy in like, it was like empowering people, empowering small businesses, uh, everybody to get started. Uh, even though maybe the, the analogy for what we're doing can, is not like one by one. But that's a little bit at least how I think about the world and, and where I believe, you know, the sum of a community, the sum of people in, uh, maybe that's a very positive way of thinking, but the sum of people usually does something good more than you have, let's say, maybe only one or two who control the whole thing. I think it's cool to think about, at least I get excited thinking about, it's like everyone being able to specialize and then like doing, unlocking that through software too, because like the challenge is like, coordinating that like how do you make sure that everyone is able to kind of build the the pieces that, that they're best at how do you plug them into a system where like if you're building a rocket or you're building a, a home or you're building you know a laptop how do you just get like each of the individual components like all kind of aggregated sourced together instead of having it come through one factory where it's you know being essentially controlled or decentralizing the manufacturing process <laughs> or something if you will do you kind of quickly give me the overview of the this concept of, like the factory stack like what? What is that? And like, why is that? Why is that interesting? It's funny that you mentioned it because we had a session in our community to talk about it today. Like literally today, uh, we talked about let's say the future of the factory stack. The analogy or where I come from is if you think about tech companies, all of them have like a tech stack, right? They have like a database. They have you know um, like the cloud provider uh, where they, where they run the applications. They have something for the deployment and so on. And a really cool thing I think with with tech is here um, that. It's very compatible, so you can really choose, you know, maybe the database provider you want to you wanna start with, um, the cloud provider you want to start with, and so on. And also, it makes things very easy to, to build application on top of this, right? On top of, like, let's say, the tech stack of other companies, right? So I can build you know, upon, like, a Salesforce or whatever. And if you think about a factory, there's, like, material, machines, there are people, there's a data layer, there are sensors, uh, and then there's software. So the problem is that all of these different things running around the factory, usually they are not that well connected yet. And so there's not, you know, one dominant platform uh, that connects all of this. The software that's running in the factory is usually very different. So you know, what you're building cannot maybe easily scale from one factory to another one. And I think in the future, there will be a point in time. And I think the biggest question is just like when and this can be two, five, 10 years, or maybe even longer. There will be a point in time when we have this kind of like stack in a factory where you can just like easily build things on top of it, right? And this doesn't mean that there will be one platform, let's say one IoT platform or one uh, manufacturing execution system, but maybe, you know, different kind of like things in the factory, like a, also, again, a database layer or a different database and so on, where you then can build easily applications on top of it, like predictive maintenance or in, in analytics and so on. But right now, the problem is everybody or nearly everybody has to, you know, build integrations build i don't know like even bring devices into the factory to connect different machines and so on and this makes it just so difficult to to scale and to build really cool shit on uh with the data these companies have these factories have and with the machines and everything uh, and unfortunately yeah this will i think still take some time but i still believe really in this vision at some point it you know you can 
you can build a predictive maintenance app maybe within a few days and just boom, via cloud, um, deliver it to one of your customers that's maybe sitting, I don't know, in, uh, in southern Germany running a factory. So it's almost like we have to we have to go back through and we have to like reinvent the the stack, create like a- APIs, new hardware. Because the thing is like you have these devices that like are very very preci- like these manufacturing devices that are like very precise machines that create the parts or whatever, but like they don't talk with all the other pieces. Exactly, and the problem is that many of the factories, I mean, they ha- they have been built you know 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and the machines are there for like a long time, so. If you build a factory today from scratch, then you can do it, right? You get the newest technologies, newest machines, it's all connected, so fine, get it. But, and I don't have the number, but like many of the factories, they, they won't disappear. Uh, one analogy that a friend of mine is doing is, uh, it's like a LAN party, you know? Basically, a factory is like a LAN party where everybody over time brought in uh, his or her PC. They're all different and they somehow get connected, right? And that's basically what a factor is. So there's like all these different machines and types of devices and they're all connected. It somehow works. <laughs> but even if you just pluck out one computer, maybe the whole system crash. <laughs> that's a little how it feels. With that in mind, like why spend the energy and effort like trying to upgrade or like make make the like existing manufacturers and, and facilities like move into the modern world instead of going different path like building your own manufacturing facility that is focused on one creating like an exciting environment for people to work in but two is building out the stack from like first principles from the ground up other than that just being like hard i love this question because i think it's a fascinating opportunity nick pinkston uh, tried this a little bit i think or did it with plethora one with like a kind of like a vertically uh factory that it's quite automated i would say I think it's crazy hard. It's just crazy hard uh, because you need so much upfront investment. Uh, you need very talented people. And and so I think there's, let's say, if, if you find someone to produce uh, batteries, then I think you can do it, right? You can get a lot of like uh, money. You can build like a whole factory and so on. I think Northwold does it a little bit like this. But boy, boy, if you, like, if you, if you do this from scratch, I mean, there's so much upfront investment. And the problem is, you know, manufacturing doesn't have software margins. It's not that you build a factory and once you've built everything and it's running, you have like an 80% profit margin. It, it's not like this. And so this makes it, I think, even harder to then at some point return the amount of investment that you need to put in to, to just get it going. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if there's like, maybe there's perhaps another way of thinking about it where, where you can actually generate significant like margins. How much is lost in like the inefficiency? Yeah, it costs this part, you know, I mean, you could probably save like 20, 30% on like human labor, on like labor costs. And I don't know, it just seems like there's, there's like a room for a lot of the air and a lot of inefficiency to like pull it out of the system and turn it into, into margin, which could then make it a viable like thing to, to invest in and get the capital for. I don't know, I, just, just on that, I, I see the capital markets changing too. I don't know about you, but it seems like certain things are able to get the funding they need to go like, take, these, take these sort of bets. Which I think is good. Which I think is very good because if you think about like the biggest problems we're having, right? For example, like lots of with climate change and all the CO2 in the atmosphere and so on, where you just need different types of investors or different like also money pots because these problems are so complex. They require so much upfront investment, which is just like much harder than, let's say, like a bottom up SaaS uh, solution that you build. And this is not negative at all, right? It's just like I think a different type of company or product you want to build. 
And I think it's good that the capital market is in a way is shifting in the sense that that these opportunities or the people who want to solve these problems also can get the money they need. Uh, and I think for example with the vaccine it was similar, right? We like today was today that Kuravec announced um how their vaccine is going and I think their success rate, I don't know how it was the right name, but it's only forty percent or so. So, you know, compared to like a Pfizer and BioNTech and so on, it's a it's a big it looks like a big loser. But it's part of the game. It's part of innovation, right? I think it, we're incredibly lucky that some of these providers like BioNTech were able to build a vaccine in that amount of time with this uh, level of success, right? And so it's also fine that there's a player where there's also a lot of investment, uh, but maybe, you know, it's just not as good. I mean, that's part of innovation, right? And so I think this should be similar for other types of problems and so on. And I think just a good example to as a reminder for, for us how it should be. What excites you the most about the future? What are you, what are you hyper optimistic about? I'm hyper optimistic about more people taking on the world's most pressing challenges. So, you know, seeing more people going into, for example, trying to solve climate change problems is something that I think is very positive. And um, people who really care about, let's say, health or society disimbalances, I think, and trying to, to build companies there. That's something I'm very positive. There's, of course, you know, also people who maybe just see the opportunity and, and do it because of that. But I think there's more, more and more like very mission driven people. And, and this excites me a lot. And I think uh, we cannot have enough of these uh, kind of people and also the courage to, to do it. And also maybe, you know, it's, it might be not the best financial investment for themselves because in some of these problems, it's just much harder to make money compared to, let's say, I don't know, in gambling or gaming or whatever. And again, not, nothing wrong with this, but I think that's something I'm seeing at least in the last few years that make me very positive. Also, I think the way companies get built, right? If you think about, for example, letting all people participate um, in terms of stock options, you know, that when they IPO, they get something back, kind of like policies they have in place, diversity and so on. It's We have massive challenges, like, of course, manufacturing is completely bad, by the way, <laughs> when it comes to diversity, so let's not even talk about it. But at least, you know, there's more and more role models who who build companies in a way where I think, hey, this is really cool. And they're really thinking about deep about, you know, the, the human, basically. And it's again about empowerment. And um, I think, you know, if you have a company uh, like Patagonia that has the vision, hey, we're in business to save our home planet. I mean, this is pretty incredible if you think about it, right? That this is a company. I, wow. Like, kudos to them. It is, it is amazing. I, I share I share your optimism there. It does seem like, especially over the past year, people have realized that like things are going to play out a certain way unless they step up and take responsibility for making things different. I think there's a lot of people who who saw like, oh no, we need new institutions, we need new media, we need new kind of visions for the future. We need to be solving all these existential crises that are facing our world. Like most importantly, we need to fucking work together because like, Hey, like, you and I are thousands of miles apart, but we have like the climate challenges, the um, like plastic challenges, like socioeconomic, political challenges, like all these things like affect both of us, right? We are connected now. Like it's no longer like me over here in, you know, California and you, you were there in Germany and be like, okay, cool. Like you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. It's like, I mean, we're in this, but we're in this boat together. <laughs> We're all on this boat, so so let's uh, let's let's make it work. But hey, where where can people find you, and and how can they support the the mission? People can find me usually on Twitter, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I think it's the most um, most common cha- uh, channels. My newsletter as well. Um, it's called 
the community the community is future manufacturing.io the courses we're running with avio is avio.1 uh, and then just my i think my my name on twitter i'm always super happy to talk to people who maybe share some of the the, the same thinking around the future how we see it. i think we're still very early in this market uh, at least that's the way when i talk to people i Sometimes also, you know, get a lot of pushback, which is fine. I think that's, you know, that's probably a good sign when you're early, but maybe not too early to a market. Uh, but very happy to, you know, talk to people and anybody who, who maybe has, you know, new ideas and so on in general. I think, again, being very open-minded about this also helps a lot. So it was really cool also to talk to you about uh, all of this kind of stuff. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you want to support the show, please share favorite episode with a friend. If you want to get updates on the events we're hosting, new podcast episodes, and follow along as we build the new World's Fair, you can follow me on Twitter at C-A-M-W-I-E-S-E. Until next time, go build.